Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Pastor Sidor and Sister Lillian, thank you for being with us today. We love you. We're so grateful for our partnership in the gospel, for your ministry. Your presence among us strengthens us. It puts steel in our spine, and we are so grateful for you. I pray that our text this morning would put steel in your spine as well. We're going to finish, Lord willing, John chapter 10, this glorious chapter today. And so we're going to start in verse 22. Here's the flow of this morning. I'm going to read through the chapter, the second half of the chapter, make some comments along the way, and summarize a few truths to encourage us if we have time. And then we're going to gather around the table and receive the Lord's Supper together. This is God's holy word. It's been superintended through the ages by the Spirit of God providentially into our language, translated in a faithful way, so that we can know God's Word to us. If you're visiting with us, we've been working through the Gospel of John, and we find ourselves almost in the middle, chapter 10, starting in verse 22. Let me pray, and then I'll start reading. Lord, thank you for the gathering of the saints. Thank you for this new day. Thank you for our dear brother and sister from Haiti. Thank you for the privileges you give us to gather together. Thank you for the Word of God and the Spirit of God that wrote it and preserved it and makes it alive to us this morning. Lord, help us to see Jesus. Put steel in our spines this morning, Lord. Help us to persevere to the end and use the means of even this passage and our gathering today to be part of, your, part of your ways to bring that about. For my friends that don't know Jesus that are here this morning, Lord, would you, by your sovereign grace and choice, call them to faith and repentance and trust in Christ, and would you give them new life? Lord, I pray now that I would decrease and that you would increase and that your people and all those that hear would benefit from the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. John chapter 10, verse 22, just a little context. Jesus is speaking, he is declaring who he is. We're getting to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Even though we are only halfway through the number of words, basically, of the Gospel of John, about halfway through the chapters, we're really just a few months until the end of Jesus's life. In fact, we'll get into John chapter 11 next week, and then we start to get to Jesus's discourse with his disciples, and really, we're just weeks away from his crucifixion in the timeline. And Jesus has healed this blind man in John chapter 9, which is, of course is a metaphor of spiritual sight, but it's also a picture of how the religious leaders of Israel's day were blind guides. They were terrible shepherds. They were leading people astray. And Jesus now is juxtapositioning himself, juxtaposing himself against, I may have just made up a word, but I think you know what I'm talking about. He's, he's contrasting his leadership against the leadership of the religious leaders. And he is telling them that he is the good shepherd. He is the one that lays down his life for the sheep. And here in verse 22, we pick up part of that conversation. John, the disciple, writes, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Well, let me stop there and just pause and say, notice the description in John's 
recounting here of the detail. He mentions that it was winter. He talks about the particular side of the temple that Jesus was walking on. And he mentions it was at the time of the Feast of Dedication. Now, that's an interesting phrase, Feast of Dedication, because it's actually not one of the feasts that's mentioned in the Old Testament. But it was a feast that came about uh, in the life of Israel during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was during this intertestamental time. And what happened was around 165 AD, there was this Syrian king and Israel was kind of going back and forth and their independent Israel, Jerusalem was going back and forth and having their periods of, in, of dependence and then under being foreign rule. And we see them now in the New Testament under Roman rule and authority and captivity. But about 165 years before Jesus's birth, Israel was, was free, Jerusalem was free, and they were, they were invaded again by this Syrian king. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he captured Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, as a kind of slap in the face of the Jewish people and of God himself, he, he slaughters a pig on the, the very holy of holies in the temple of Jerusalem, which would have, of course, been an, an offense to the Jewish people. And this was a terrible low point in the history of Israel. And God raised up this Jewish leader, Judas Maccabeus, and he defeats Antiochus and kicks him out of the temple. And Israel regains the, 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 the city of Jerusalem. And that military victory which is captured in some of the intertestamental books, Maccabeus, is, is this great celebration that is commemorated by this Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights, which the Jewish people still celebrate today as the Feast of Hanukkah, which was around the end of what we know now as November and December, which was celebrated on the 25th of December. So that's where the modern-day Jewish people get the Feast of Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication commemorating this recapturing of the temple from this pagan king who was desecrating the Holy of Holies. Just a couple things before we move on is just two encouragements. One, as we live in a culture that is increasingly hostile, at least in the West and in our country, which has been relatively neutral towards Christianity, but now seems to be more hostile, it's just an encouragement that there's nothing new under the sun. God's people have always been facing vile persecution and hatred from the world. So we shouldn't think that something strange is happening to us. And secondly, just, a, just an exhortation. There's a kind of irony here that Jesus is here at the temple during the time of this feast of dedication where this man came to rescue, just celebrating Judas Maccabeus, who was rescuing Israel from this foreign captor who was desecrating the temple. And so in a strange irony, the religious leaders of the day, in Jesus' day, were, were wanting to arrest him and kill him as they were commemorating the victory of this Jewish leader who was ridding them from this foreign oppressor. So really, in a strange sort of way, Judas Maccabeus, this great military victor of Israel, is a kind of picture of Christ who now we have Christ who's come not just to rescue us from military oppressors, but from the oppression of sin. And there's this kind of irony that they're kicking out the true and better, the true and better liberator who's liberating them not just from political oppression, but from sin. And so it's in that context that Jesus is speaking. In verse 24, so the Jews gathered around and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If, if you're the Christ or the Messiah is what they meant, tell us plainly. Now what's their motive here? Because Jesus had told them, and this is a, a kind of interesting uh, little wordplay here that they are thinking about Jesus as the Messiah, and they are basically saying to him, "If you are the Messiah," and remember we talked about this early on in the chapters of John, that there was this misunderstanding amongst the people of Israel at the time when they looked at the Old Testament scriptures and they saw the promises of the Messiah. They honed in on it and interpreted it as Jesus being merely a political rescuer. 
So they're celebrating this feast of the political rescue of, of, of Israel from the Syrians, and they would remember their rescue from the Babylonians, and then they were wanting to be rescued from the Romans. And so they had their sort of lasered-in focus on Jesus making them better now. And so they were, that's what they were thinking about Jesus as the Messiah. And so when Jesus is saying things like in John chapter 8 and other places, in John chapter 5, where he is clearly telling them that he is God. For example, at the end of John chapter 8, where Jesus uses the same phrase where he says, I am, he uses the same wording that God used back in Exodus to identify himself to Moses. That would have been a clear and obvious proclamation of his deity, which caused the people to want to kill him. But that's, they're not really wanting God in the flesh to rescue them from their sin. They're wanting a political rescue from Rome. They're missing the point. And so that's why, even though it seems obvious that Jesus, from our perspective, with 2,000 years of, 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 of a retroactive perspective, it seems obvious that Jesus has told them plainly that he's the Christ. They're misunderstanding even what the Christ and who the Christ is to be. Not God become man, but a mere political military rescuer. And so they're missing the point. And Jesus answered them. Listen to verses 25 and 26. These are sobering words. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, all these things I've done, the, remember the feeding of the multitudes, the walking on the water, the multitudes of healings that we've read about up to this point in John. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, John says that if we were to write all of the things down that Jesus did, did during his earthly ministry, there would not be enough books in the world to contain them. He says, I told you, and you did not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Listen to verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So follow the logic of Jesus' words here. And we see a clear accent on divine sovereignty in salvation. Jesus is telling these people that the reason that they don't believe is because they are not amongst his sheep. Remember John chapter 6, where Jesus says that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And with that as a backdrop, Jesus is saying some hard things here, some sobering things, some, some, some man's pride diminishing things and God's sovereignty exalting things. He's saying that the reason that you don't believe is because you're not one of my sheep. He's not saying the reason that you're not one of my sheep is because you don't believe. He's saying what is coming first is that you're not one of my sheep, and that's the reason why you don't believe. And that's what verse 26 is saying. He continues. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So he's contrasting those who are not his sheep with those who are his sheep. Those who are not his sheep do not believe him. All of these great works that are done in front of their eyes, and yet still they refuse him. Contrasting that with his sheep, what do his sheep do? They hear his voice. He knows them, and they follow me. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is not that they believe a certain amount of doctrinal truths, not merely that they physically locate themselves a few times a month with other professing believers. All those are wonderful things to do, but the distinguishing mark of a Christian in the New Testament, and according to Jesus' words here in verse 27, is that they, they to some degree, they follow Him, they, they obey Him, their lives follow after Him. More on that in a moment. Verse 28 
and 29. And again, these are some of the most famous and steel-inspiring words in the whole Gospel of John. What does Jesus now say about these sheep? He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, let's just think quickly about verses 28 and 29 before we move on, and we're going to circle back around to what I think is going on in verses 28 and 29. But Jesus very clearly is saying, you know, there are some parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand. Verses 28 and 29, I don't think is one of them. Jesus is saying, I give my sheep eternal life. That means they will never perish. They will never cease to exist. And where will they exist? They will be with me. They will be in my hand. They will be united with me forever. And what does that mean? It means that no one, no devil in hell, no principality or power, no earthly philosophy, not even themselves will be able to snatch them out of my hand. And if that's not enough encouragement and security for you, Jesus doubles down on it and he says, my father who has given them to me. So just picture in your mind, John 6, God has a people in eternity past, all of those that he would bring to faith in him. And he gives them to the Son. And there's nothing stronger, there's no force or power that can intercept that handoff or disrupt that transfer. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one, again, no demon or devil in hell, no principality or power, no earthly philosophy, not even our own selves, no one is able to pluck them, to break into that transfer, to, to intercept that handoff, that, that gift of the people that he has called and given to the Son. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. <laughs> okay. Verses 28 and 29 are incredibly important. And just in case we wonder if there's any dual motivation here, if, uh, if, if there's any misunderstanding of mission between and within the beautiful, mysterious, eternal workings of the Trinity, Jesus erases any such doubt in verse 30, and he says, I and the Father are one. We're together on this. I understand his intent. For those of you that are in the army that have to write or listen to op orders, paragraph three, execution, Jesus is executing perfectly the exact mission that the Father wants him to execute. And he understands the Father's intent perfectly. There's no gap. There's no air. There's no oxygen between the Father's will and the Son's will. They are one. They are two distinct persons along with the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. It's a mystery. It's beautiful. We can't fully comprehend it, but we can see it. One God, three persons in complete union. The Father having planned salvation, the Son having accomplished salvation, and the Spirit applying salvation even now. And they are one. They're one. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. And as a consequence of that, nothing can snatch my sheep from mine or the Father's hand because we 
are one, and we are greater than all. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Now, just, just let's step back and just think about picking up stones to stone Jesus, who has done nothing but good. He has done nothing but wonderful, gracious, merciful works for Israel. He has healed the sick. He's opened the eyes of the blind. He's made the lame walk. He's fed the hungry multitudes. And yet, these religious leaders hated him. And they wanted to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they, they admit that they're frustrated with Jesus because he wasn't what they wanted him to be. They wanted him to be a mere political rescuer. They wanted temporary liberation They didn't want to have to deal with the eternal liberation that they really needed, which was liberation from their own sin, which would take God in the flesh. And so they hated the fact that he was claiming to be God. Verse 34, Jesus answered them. You know, verses 34 through 36 are a little bit, it's kind of hard to understand on the surface, but I hope I can explain to you what I think Jesus is doing here. Jesus is going to quote an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 82. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? Now he's quoting Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7 in particular. He said, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. Okay. What's going on here? Uh, Let me just flip over to Psalm 82, and let me read Psalm 82 to give you a little context of the point Jesus is making. I'll read it quickly. Psalm 82 is in, it's 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 a song where the psalmist is talking about how God has called Israel to be, in a sense, kind of his divine judges over the earth, but they have failed in their task of being divine representatives of God on the earth. And so when it, you see in, like Jesus said in John, how he's quoting Psalm 82, how he's saying basically the word says that you are God's, lowercase g, this is not all of the sudden like God saying that we are somehow divine. It's a, it's a title of sonship, even in our humanity, that God was giving to the Old Testament judges of Israel. So if maybe you have a, a Mormon friend or something like that, that believes that we ultimately end up being gods, and they use this psalm where Jesus is talking about us, and the psalmist is talking about us being God's lowercase g, this doesn't mean that someday we're going to evolve to be like the God or deity of our own little solar system. That's not the point here. That's not the way the Hebrew language works. These lowercase g gods is meaning it's a position of divine stewardship that God is giving his people, in particular, Israel's judges in the Old Testament. And so, in Psalm 8, are you tracking with me? I want you to understand this. Okay, so Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, lowercase g, he holds judgment. So he's, he's called the people to execute his ways on the earth. And in a sense, Israel, their judges are to be kind of like a divine council that God is using to bring his rule and reign on the earth, which is kind of how God works with us too. He wants to represent himself through us. And then he says, an indictment, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? 
Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is an indictment on the judges of Israel. They were not doing that. You have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And here's where Jesus quotes, verse 6. I said, and this is God speaking to these poor judges of Israel. I said, you are God's. Or you are my representatives on the earth. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So what is going on in Psalm 82? Psalm 82 is God's indictment of the failure of Israel's leadership to live up to their status and responsibility that he's given them it's, it's an indictment. Do you get that? And Jesus is using it back in John chapter 10 in a kind of almost sort of play of words, almost a kind of irony. He's saying, well, wait a minute. You're saying that, you're, you're saying that I'm claiming to be God because I'm a son of God? And Jesus is saying, he's sort of, it's, it's irony. He's saying, in a sense, you're supposed to be that too, but you failed in this. And so how can you say that I'm blaspheming because I'm actually saying I am the son of God. I'm God. He's, it's a play on words where he's basically using that as a platform to say, I am the son of God. Here, the one true judge who has come to finally rescue the needy and pour out God's mercy, mercy on all the people. Verse 37 and 38, if I am not doing the works of my father back into John 10, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many, verse 41, came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John, speaking about John the Baptist, everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Okay, we're going to end before we come to the Lord's table with three brief truths to encourage us. Three brief truths. First, I want you to notice from this text that salvation begins with God's choice. Salvation begins with God's, maybe the more biblical term would be election or choosing. Now, this is a truth that I believe is biblical, but I want to be careful to say that faithful, Jesus-loving, fruitful Christians may and do disagree with my perspective on this truth. Believing how I believe this verse, what it teaches, is not essential, clearly for salvation or membership in this church, but I do think it's true and biblical, and I want you to wrestle with it, and I hope you will be persuaded. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus says that the reason that these people do not believe is because they're not among his sheep. And then in verse 29, Jesus is speaking about a particular group of people that this father has given to the son. So what's going on here? I think this is clear evidence from Jesus that salvation is something that God must first give a person apart from anything in them, any merits, any condition, any work in them. And I think that flows from an understanding of human nature after the fall. We are dead in our sins. We are unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God. And that's where the phrase unconditional election comes from. God is choosing a people for himself not based on any conditions, not based on any prior thing in them. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 6. And if you're not familiar with Ephesians chapter, if you've been coming to Crosspoint for more than like six months or so, and you're not familiar, at least to some degree, with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 in particular, 
I, I, I don't know what else to tell you other than, come on now, come on, okay? Ephesians 2, listen to this. But God, he has just concluded that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. That's verses 1 through 3. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raises, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So notice we're dead. We're not amongst the sheep. We are people that do not believe in him. We are going our own way. And Jesus, God, the Trinity, makes us alive, verse 5 says. He makes us alive. Why does he make us alive? What's the grounding? What's the motivation? What's the condition? What's the reason that God makes dead people alive? Is it because they have done something? Is it because they have made a movement towards him? Is it because they first execute faith? No, they are unable to do so. He gives us the reason in verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. Who is that us? That us is the same people in John chapter 6 that the Father gives to the Son. That us is the same people in John chapter 10 that we just read, who in verse 27 are his sheep, and in contrast to those who are not his sheep, believe him, heed his voice, and follow him. Salvation begins with God's choosing, not our choosing. I think we see this logic all through the gospel of John. I think we see it in John chapter 1, verse 13, at the very beginning. He says, this is a description of Christians. We're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, I believe that. I believe that our only hope is not that we would first move towards God, but that God first moves towards us. And why? God doesn't move towards everybody. Why there's not a universal salvation is not mine to determine. That's God's business. I believe that. I'll put my cards on the table. If you're wondering, I am in a theological camp that you would call uh, reformed, meaning that I believe that salvation is God's unconditional grace and election, not based on any foreseen faith or merit in the person. I believe that as sure as I'm standing before you today. But I also believe the biblical truth, the mysterious, beautiful biblical truth of human responsibility. Back into John chapter 6 that we looked at, I want, to, I want you to see this because I don't want I don't want us to run with this truth too far, and I don't want you to apply this truth in an unbiblical way, because the Bible puts these two things together. It puts God's utter sovereignty and choice and freeness and unconditional election right next to the gospel call and responsibility of a human to believe. And how do those two things fit together? We have to admit that we don't see it on this side of eternity. Spurgeon says that they are like two parallel lines that run together. And from our perspective, they never meet, but they do meet at the throne of God. Let me read to you from John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I want you to see this. We, read, we, we hit on this when we were back in John chapter 6. Surely you remember this. Actually, I know you don't. That's why I'm going to repeat it. John chapter 6 is this glorious chapter about how Jesus says that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And no one can come to the Father unless he draws them. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. But a few verses before that, this is what Jesus says to a crowd that we can certainly assume is filled with mostly unbelievers at this point. And in John chapter 6, verse 27, this is what Jesus is saying to this dead in their sins, unrepentant, still unbelieving crowd. He says, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, this is the crowd of mostly unregenerate, unsaved, dead in their sins people, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. In other words, this is how you are saved. This is how you are made one with the Father. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So notice how Jesus applies the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. Does it cause Jesus to just assume that some are his sheep or some aren't his sheep? No, Jesus says to the crowd, this is what you must do. Believe, believe. And he will give you meat. He will give you food that never perishes. Jesus' offer to these people was not a false offer. It was a true offer. Listen to what J.C. Ryle, I love this. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop in the 1800s in London, said of this verse, I read this when we went through John chapter 6, I think it bears repeating. When our Lord says, and this is from J.C. Ryle, this wonderful Anglican pastor theologian, said in his commentary on John. He said, when our Lord says, the Son of Man shall give you the meat or the food that endures to everlasting life, he appears to me to make one of the widest and most general offers to unconverted sinners that we have anywhere in the Bible. The men to whom he was speaking were, beyond question, carnal-minded and unconverted men. Yet even to them, Jesus says, the Son of Man shall give unto you To me, it seems an unmistakable statement of Christ's willingness and readiness to give pardon and grace to any sinner. It seems to me to warrant ministers in proclaiming Christ's readiness to save anyone and in offering salvation to anyone if if he will only repent and believe the gospel. Election, no doubt, is a mighty truth and a precious privilege. Complete and full redemption, no doubt, is the possession of none but the elect. But how easy it is in holding these glorious truths to become more systematic than the Bible and to spoil the gospel by cramping and limiting it. I think that's true. So what do I make of this? I make of this that God has a people. He knows every one of them. In eternity past, he's given a people to his son. And not one more and not one less of those people will come to him. All those, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, is a unbroken chain in eternity. All those whom he has predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's an airtight, eternally glorious seal. Nothing can break into that from eternity past to eternity forward. That is true. But... It's also true that Jesus preaches the gospel to unconverted sinners, and we must too. So God has a people, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So right now, how are you taking this truth? How are you taking this truth? Is it causing you to feel a kind of unfairness towards God? then that may be an indication that you believe that your notions of mercy and love are actually bigger than God's. He is, Ephesians 2, rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Don't don't believe in your own goodwill towards some unsaved loved person, loved one. Don't believe in your good intentions towards them more than God's. God is able to save to the uttermost. Turn that negative thinking around and view it positively, optimistically. God can and does save anyone, all types of people. Tyler read it this morning. There is one mediator and one man, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That doesn't mean that everybody makes it to heaven. It means that all types of people, even the worst of sinners, make it to heaven because of God's rich mercy. So turn it around. 
Turn it around. Put your hope in the rich mercy of God. Not that somebody might of their own free will eventually trust in Christ. Put your hope in the mercy of God that he delights in saving wicked people. And he does it. And whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Encouragement number two, quickly, true believers follow and obey Jesus. That's the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Brothers and sisters, don't fall into this trap of this little goofy saying that came about in the 70s and 80s. I think out of the church growth movement that says it's possible to accept Jesus as your Savior at some point in your life and then your Lord later. That is folly. The Bible is completely unfamiliar with that logic. It is not to say that a Christian will not struggle with sin. Follow any of us around for more than 30 minutes. But it is to say that the distinguishing mark of a Christian is that they're taking God's side against their sin. Is that you? Is that you? Are you following Jesus? This is what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Yes, we're going to struggle with sin. Yes, we're going to be drawn back into muddy pits that we thought we were done with, but we are going to come back. Sanctification is a fight. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs 24, verse 16. It says that a righteous man falls seven times, but yea, he rises again. True believers follow and obey Jesus. Third truth, let's end on this. True believers are eternally secure. I think this is the main accent of this passage. True believers are eternally secure. They are safe in God's hands. What do I mean by true believers? I mean those who are born again. Not just those who profess faith, but those who in a James 2 sort of way actually demonstrate through their life to some degree, not perfectly of course, but they demonstrate there's something in their life that gives evidence to validate what they say they believe. They still struggle with sin, and they will until Jesus finally and fully glorifies them on that last day. But they are eternally secure. I think that's what this passage teaches us. We're in Jesus' hands we're in the Father's hands. The Father has given us to Jesus. There's this beautiful symmetry in the Trinity. And Jesus says they will never perish. Nothing can snatch them out of my hand. This isn't the only verse that talks about this. There's a, there's a stack full of verses in the New Testament that hint at or clearly articulate this doctrine. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will, not might, but will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jay, this morning in our call to worship, read for his first Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, listen to the logic, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's speaking about heaven, that's speaking about our final state, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God, who is utterly sovereign, is keeping us through the means of even our own meager faith, and he's guaranteeing that it will be there on that day, and it will be finally revealed, and everything that we've been through will redound to the glory of God. <laughs> Hebrews 10, verse 14. You know this is one of my favorite verses. Listen to this. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, meaning Jesus' death and resurrection, his work on the cross, for by a single offering, he has, past tense, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So your knees are getting skinned, your elbows are bloody, you're not running, you are crawling to God, you are being sanctified, but you already have been perfected. It's a done deal, it's in the books, you're making it all the way home. 
And I quoted it earlier, but we're going to do it again because it's Romans 8. And those, Romans 8, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. In other words, those that the Father gave the Son, he in time, before time, those that the Father gave to the Son, he predestined, he in time, he called them. He caused their dead hearts to hear the gospel, to be awakened to it. He gave them a new heart. He caused their blind eyes to see. He opened their deaf ears. He, he called them the, the power of the gospel, which is mighty to save, awakened their dead heart where there was no heartbeat, where there was no faith. Faith came. They were called. And those whom he called, who've been made alive, he also justified. He reconciled them to God. He forgave all their sins. He gave them Jesus' righteousness. And those who he called in time and are now justified, those whom he justified, where are they going to go? If they agree, maybe if things work out. No, he, he also, past tense, glorified. It's coming. It's going to happen. It's in the books. It's sealed. Nothing can get in the airtight eternal security of verse 30. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Okay, so what effect should this have on us? Before I land this plane, we got to receive communion here. I always want to try and be shorter when we do communion, but so much for that. And friends, uh, should we say, okay, well, I'm a Christian. This evil phrase, this unwarranted and unwise phrase, once saved, always saved as if we can just kind of now do what we want. No, if that's the mentality of a believer, if that's how you take this doctrine, then I think you should go home and read Romans 6. And the logic of Romans 6 is, is that if the gospels work in your life, if you think that what Jesus has done should produce in you a kind of laxness towards sin, then you are giving evidence that you are still being mastered by the flesh and sin, and you really don't have a new master, Jesus. So if, if, if a person takes from this doctrine a kind of easy believism, I can do what I want, my eternity is secure, this is kind of like, you know, license to just live it out and then someday get serious with God, they give evidence that they truly don't know the Lord. Jesus talks about the parable of the sower, and there's four types of soil. And the first three, especially, well, the first two, the, the, the seed that falls on the ground that it gets amongst the rocky ground and it seems to spring up for a while and gets choked out by persecution. And, and soil number three that grows up seemingly for a while and then gets, gets choked out by the cares of this world. Those people weren't Christians that lost their salvation. They were people who acted like Christians and said they were Christians, but proved themselves in the end to never truly be Christians. But those, verse, soil number four, those those good soil, the one that the Lord has called, even though they're going to have all sorts of trouble, even though there's, there's going to be all sorts of tribulations that they still face, they're going to endure to the end. They're going to make it. They're going to, they're going to come all the way home. Jesus is going to bring them, and nothing, nothing, nothing can snatch them from his hand. And so what should we take from this? We should take from this, Lord, I'm yours. Are you, here's the question. Are you trusting in him right now? Are you, are you clinging to God? I'm not asking you if you're a member of this church or if, you, if you're relatively satisfied with the status of your own sanctification. I'm not asking you how you feel about yourself right now. And Paul and Robert and I, we play Wordle together. You guys playing Wordle? Anybody playing Wordle? A little word game? And you got six guesses. And Paul and Robert and I were joking about how if we get the word in a shorter number of tries than the other two guys, we sort of feel superior to the other two dummies on our chat thread, you know? And if we end up going all the way to six tries and the other guy, then we just feel, the, so we're so subjective. How do I feel about myself right now? I've been struggling with something. I mean, how do I feel? Friends, this truth takes us out of the subjectivity, the fleetingness of our feelings, and it puts it into the objective certainty of God's grace and love and keeping power right now. Who are you trusting in? Are you struggling with sin? So are we all to some degree. Cling to Christ. Hold to him. He's holding you. 
So what should we take from this? We should take from this a motivation to run, to cling, to hold on to Christ because we know that we are his. If God is for me, Paul concludes, who can be against me? God, who gave his only son, who gave him on the cross, how will he not give you all things? That's Paul's logic from this truth. That everything is yours. Everything is yours. Everything is yours. So don't look for anything outside of Christ. Everything is yours. You are his. You will make it all the way home. So live, live for him. Live, live for him. That's, that's the conclusion. You're his sheep. You're in his hand. He will keep you. Fight sin. Keep crawling. Keep crawling. Keep crawling. Live with other Christians. Do it. Do it. Do it. Because you are his. And Christ is better by far. We're coming now to the table to receive communion. And this isn't just detached. We're coming now to receive this bread and this cup that represents what Jesus has done for us. That we, as we feast on this bread, as we, as we take this bread, and as we, which represents Jesus' body which is broken for us, and as we drink this cup, we are, we are professing again that the reason we are his sheep is because Jesus died on the cross. He bore our sin and he rose again. His blood was spilled and now a new covenant of grace is ours. And as we take this bread and we drink this cup, we are again remembering and confessing that we are his. That's what we do when we come to the table every month. And so if you are not trusting in Christ. It wouldn't be appropriate for you to come to the table in just a few moments when we do that. Don't do that. Not because we're trying to exclude you, but because we don't want you to do something that you don't yet believe. The Bible says don't do that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But if you are trusting in this gospel and you are a, a, a gospel-believing member of this church or another church, you are welcome to come to this table. And when we do it, it's not just a tradition, it's life. Just like we sang, all I have is Christ. My only plea, my only hope is Jesus and what he has done on the cross for me. And because he's done that on the cross for me, what can this world do to me? I'm safe in his arms. And that's what we confess when we come to this table. I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to lead us in a song. When you are ready, come to the table closest to you. Get the bread and the cup. Take them back to your seat. And Tyler will lead us to receive them together. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be fortified by this chapter, by these truths, by Jesus' words. They, they will never perish. May that be so of everyone who hears this because they are trusting in Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.